Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're looking at verses 19 through 23 of 1 Corinthians 9 this morning. And we have been, the title of the message is Servant Evangelism. Servant Evangelism. I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, just going down to verse 23, which says this. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more to the Jews. I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. As we've been going through 1 Corinthians, one of the things that has really stood out has been the fact that the way Paul makes statements. I don't know if you've ever had anyone in your life who you say one thing, they say the complete opposite of you. It sounds like a paradox. It can't be true. And later it turns out to be true. Uh, what are some of the paradoxes that Paul has said in 1 Corinthians? Who remembers some of the statements that Paul has made that seem like they can't be true, but they're true? Chapter 1, we had, for example, a statement in verse 27, chapter 1, verse 27, where he, he claims that weakness is more powerful than strength. That's what I mean by a paradox. Weakness is more powerful than strength. And it doesn't sound like it can possibly be true, but obviously when, when you're looking at uh, us being weak and God's strength shining through, it's more powerful than any human strength. Chapter 2, verse 4, preaching is more powerful when the preacher himself is less persuasive. Preaching is more powerful when the preacher is less persuasive. Chapter 2, verse 4, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I mean, that that just sounds, can that that possibly be right? I mean, we could have a preaching class here at the the Master's Seminary, how to persuade in, in wisdom, using wisdom, right? And yet Paul says, my preaching was not using persuasive words in wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, and of course he's talking about human wisdom there, human intellect is not the way we win people to Christ, which is, it's a paradox because the rest of the world, especially in the Corinthian, the Greek society, was this prize of thinking and brilliance and argumentation. True wisdom in chapter 3 is only found by those who are what? Foolish. True wisdom is found through foolishness, chapter 3, verse 18. I like chapter 6, verse 7, one of my favorite verses. And we learn there that being wronged 
and defrauded has advantages. Why not rather be wronged? Hmm, I never thought of that. Yeah. Oh, I get it now. We should be wronged and we should be defrauded. That's a good thing. You see how it's, it just seems like total contrary, totally contrary to the way the world thinks. It's a paradox until you realize what he's talking about. Chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, Christ sets you free, but when you use your freedom and cause your brother to stumble, you sin against Christ. So you have freedom, but that freedom is often abused. So, and I think this goes contrary to our thinking because immediately when we want to do something, we think, I have the freedom to do that. I have freedom. I'm free. This bleeds into chapter 9, verse 18, where Paul has been arguing about his rights. And he has the right to payment. But paradoxically, paradoxically, his payment is to be unpaid. That's his greatest reward is not to be rewarded for what he deserves to be rewarded for. It just seems so backwards. And in chapter 9, verse 19, we see that Paul is free and belongs to no man. Therefore, he is free to become a slave to all men. We have this other paradox. I'm free, free to be a slave to everyone. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We have, we have uh, an example of Paul not trying to make the gospel easier to tolerate or more palatable, but to try to make himself not stand in the way of the gospel. You know, we have uh, many examples of people who have changed the gospel uh, I have a, a, a book that I have glanced over by Robert Schuller called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. <laughs> Eesh, somebody said. Amazingly, he denies the fact that God should be the central figure in salvation. He says this, quote, It is precisely at this point that classical theology has erred in its insistence that theology be God-centered and not man-centered. He says, we have it all wrong. We should be man-centered in our, in our preaching. He goes on to define man, man-centered theology. Which, I mean, man-centered theology. Theology is the study of God. So man it's, it's like an oxymoron. It's like one of these things that doesn't make sense, military intelligence, or uh, <laughs> uh, he's pretty ugly. or you know. I mean, you, we think about uh, the, the words that just don't go together, God-centered, man-centered, theology. And so he says this, quote, this master plan of God is designed around the deepest needs of human being, self-dignity, self-respect, self-worth, self-esteem. Later he writes, once a person believes that he is an unworthy sinner, it's doubtful if he can really honestly accept the saving grace that God offers in Jesus Christ. So that's not a paradox. That's just bad theology. That's just a misunderstanding of the gospel. It's that kind of teaching that reminds us of what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days, dangerous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, 
lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. So we should turn away from those who are espousing self-love, self-promotion. And we should not change the gospel. When thinking about evangelism, though, what are some practical things that you can do to witness to others? We all have people, friends, family, people that were classmates, workers, fellow workers, people we know who are not saved. What can we do intentionally to help them listen to the gospel that God might save them? What can we do to witness to them? What are some practical things? Who's got some ideas? Be a good listener. Okay, so yeah. So you're not spotlight on yourself, but on them. Okay. But there's got to be more than that, right? If we just listen, they'll never hear it. Right? Listening is important. That's true. What else? Yes. Invite them to the Christmas concert. Yeah, no, that's good. It's especially if they like music, uh, and uh, uh, then they'll hear the gospel, and that's good. It's it's kind of a Christmas is one of those things where you know we're never told to memorialize the birth of Christ. We don't have to do that once a year. In fact, if ever we're supposed to memorialize the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ every day, and we especially celebrate His resurrection on Sundays. But when we think about the The whole society is geared towards music and celebration and the birth of Christ. It is kind of an easy way to invite people. Yes, Paulo. Yep, having your work shine or before men, uh, having a good testimony that they might see that. Um, So, so. What, what else? There's, I'm fishing for something. Yes. So enjoy Jesus in front of them. Yeah. So again, your actions in the back. Be joyful and thankful. Yes. Yeah. Serve them. That's what I'm looking for. Pray for them is another thing. But we're looking at service and the, 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 the way that we can serve them. So besides declaring the gospel, besides sharing the word of God, besides praying for them, um, we should serve them. God's word teaches us that serving others is something we can do to help win them to Christ. And um, as we think about this, we think that, you know, you need to know God's word and you need to share God's word. I remember hearing the story of um, a a man reading about this guy who uh, decided that he, he got a new job at a new company, and so he said, I am going to just do everything I can to serve others, to reflect Christ. I'm not going to say that I'm a Christian. I'm just going to really motivate people through my actions. And uh, it was years that he was there, and finally he heard about one of his coworkers coming to faith in Christ. And so he went to him, he says, hey, I heard that you've become a Christian. And the coworker said, yeah, it's true, I have. And he says, I'm so glad. I also am a Christian. And the man said, you are? He said, I had no idea. 
He said, in fact, you're one of the main reasons why I was hesitant to become a Christian. Because I thought if someone could have such joy and peace and contentment and be such a godly type person without giving their life to Christ, then why do I need Christ? And so while it's true that we must serve one another, that cannot be without words. And sometimes that's difficult to bring those words up to when you have the opportunity to choose the topic of conversation, to choose the topic of topics, and that is Jesus Christ. And so Paul did both of these things. He brought the word uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, I delivered to you, first of all, that which was also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The truth of the fact is that we are sinners, and we deserve death and punishment and eternal hell, and yet Christ never sinned, therefore he never deserved to die. The wages of sin is death. And yet he allowed himself to be crucified on a cross as a sacrifice, as a substitute in the place of those who would repent and turn and trust in him. And we hear that, and we who are saved are grateful. He took our place. And his righteousness, and Romans 4, is taken out of his account, placed into our account, and our sin, taken out of our account, placed into his account where he paid for it fully on the cross so that when God looks down on us, he says, clean, white as snow, pure, righteous, another holy life. That is the good news. We must share that news with others. But one of the ways, which you might call pre-evangelism, is to serve them to serve them like there is no tomorrow, to be very intentional about how you are going to serve them. Um, So when we look at our passage, verses 19 through 23 of 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to look at two key features of Paul's servanthood that are essential for us if we're going to be effective in sharing Christ's love with others or sharing Christ with others. Two key features, and the first one is great sacrifice. And the second one, which we'll see in verse 23, is genuine love. The first one is great sacrifice, verses 19 through 22. In verse 19, Paul writes, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Back in chapter 8, Paul had addressed this issue. Uh, The issue was, is it permissible to eat meat sacrificed by idols? And what we find, and we, we talked about this in chapter 8, we talked about freedom, and we also talked about Romans 14 a little bit. What we find in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is that the Corinthians seem to prize their freedom a bit much and not look out for the weaker brother, whereas in Romans 14, it's the weaker brother who's maybe uh, uh, struggling more. And so Paul uh, approaches the person who is the stronger brother in 1 Corinthians 8, and the weaker brother in Romans 14. But in, in Romans, sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, some Christians who were mature in the faith were saying, it's no problem to eat meat sacrificed to idols because we know that idols are nothing. They're just lumps of stone or lumps of clay or lumps of metal. And so it's being sacrificed to nothing. And therefore, once it's sacrificed, a third of it goes to the priest. He can't eat all the meat. He sells it cheap to the butcher. I buy it from the butcher. It's cheap meat, it's good, and I have no problem doing it. Other Christians 
who were still weak in Corinth, people perhaps who had grown up in that pagan, idolatrous system, were saying, how can you as a Christian eat meat sacrificed to idols? When I came to faith in Christ, I I left that life. And sitting down at this table with you, and now that you just told me this has been offered to Molech or whoever, this just, just brings back all these memories. I used to worship these idols, and I used to be involved in all the immorality that went with it. And I my stomach just churns right now knowing that this was part of that. And so Paul replied by saying, technically you do have the freedom to eat meat, but if that liberty becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak, you should give it up. He went on to say in verse 13 of chapter 8, therefore if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. It's a frightful verse for men who like meat, right? And here he just says, I will never do this again. That's his heart. He cares about others so much he's willing to practice self-denial. And Christians are free to do anything that does not violate God's moral law. We have freedom, but that freedom is abused when you do something that might cause someone else to stumble. So he begins chapter 9 by giving an example of something that he has. It's the freedom, but he's denied himself so he can serve others. Verse 1, he says, am I not free? He goes on to explain he has the right to be supported by those that he teaches because those he feeds should support him. But even if they're obligated to offer support, he has the right to refuse it. Why did Paul choose to not receive support? Why did Paul choose not to receive support? Yes. Why didn't he want to give the impression that he was doing it for the money or for the gifts? Didn't he have the right to the money and the gifts? So what was the danger in receiving those? Yes. Weren't there false teachers that were doing it out of greed? So... There were false teachers, but still, Paul was not a false teacher. And so he had a right to receive the money. Just because some people are false and do things that are wrong uh, and hypocritical and lying and deceitful doesn't mean that preachers do not have a right to receive funds. So why did Paul feel the freedom to, why didn't he receive if he had the right to receive them? What was his motive? Yes, So he trusted God and God's providence, and yet just because he trusted God and his providence, it doesn't mean that another apostle like Peter or, apostle, or, or, or Apollos, who also from the chapter 9 probably received certain gifts, it doesn't mean they didn't trust God because they trusted God to provide, and God provided it through the church, and the church had a responsibility to support them, and they had the right to receive it. So, yes, There was a joy in the fact that he couldn't contribute anything to the gospel because the gospel wasn't his message, and yet, uh, you know, he but he could give up his rights, and that would be a one way he could serve the Lord more, and that brought him more joy than actually receiving what was his right to receive. And one of the key verses to understanding chapter nine is verse twelve. 
he says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Those others are other pastors who receive the right. We also deserve it even more because we helped, we helped first evangelize you is what he's saying. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And that was a big part of it. And we had talked about the fact that he didn't want others to confuse him with false teachers, but that was a hindrance. And yet his greatest joy was to participate somehow in receiving or, or being an, uh, a, a contributor to the work in ways that he could not do other ways. Um, verse 18, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. And in verse 17, it talks about the stewardship entrusted him. He's able to do something. He's able to also contribute. And he found great joy in that. He was in no way saying it was wrong for other people to receive it, and yet he was saying he was free in, the, in his decision to not or not to accept it. And although he was free from all men, verse 19 says, he made himself a slave to all. So it just seems, it seems this, this argument, the more I study it, the more I'm just wondering what was going on in that church. I do think there's got to be some sort of, um, it, it's not just that he's talking about our freedoms. I think he is talking about our freedoms. But I think that people were attacking Paul. And I think part of what's going on here is they're saying things about him. And one of the things we'll see today is I think that they were saying that, uh, well, you know, Paul, you know, first of all, he's not really supported by the church. He's just kind of a tent maker who has his own little preaching ministry, but he's not really one of our pastors. He's not really an apostle, is he? There are 12 apostles. And so in verse 1 of chapter 9, he defends his apostleship. Um, and then he goes, and then I think they were also saying things like, well, Paul, you know, after all, he lives kind of inconsistently. I've seen him with Jews, and he's following the dietary laws. And then I've seen him with Gentiles, and he's got a pork sandwich in his, in his hand, just enjoying whatever they're enjoying. And that's just inconsistent. It's just hypocritical. And so Paul is writing this letter encouraging them to live lives that are preaching Christ and living out Christ. Um, And he says that he was free from all men, and yet he was a slave to all men. So he made himself a slave. Um, And I love it the way it's just worded there. I made myself a slave. There was an Old Testament practice that Paul seems to be applying here in a spiritual sense. The Old Old Testament passage was one of slavery. When you were a Hebrew... And you could become a slave of another Hebrew, but only for six years. The law was very uh, careful in Exodus 21 to say that in the seventh year, you're to be released from that bondage as a slave. Jews who had slaves who were fellow Jews were obligated to release them every seven years. However, there was a provision because some slaves enjoyed serving their master so much that they didn't want to be released. And so they could go to their master, and they would bring a hammer and a a, a metal stake, and they would take their earlobe, and they would put it down on a piece of wood, and they would hand the hammer 
and the awl and the, and, the, and, and, and the stake and the hammer to master. And they would say, go ahead, pierce my ear. And he would boom. And that was not for fashion. That was to say, I'm your bond slave. I'm your slave past six years. I'm your slave for the rest of your, uh, my life. I find joy in serving you. Paul takes that principle and saying, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free from sin. I'm free from the obligation I have to men because nobody pays me. I can do whatever I want. I am self-sufficient. And what I want to do is become a slave to everybody. That's what Paul is saying. Why? Why would you do that, Paul? He says, that I might win the more. That I might, so that I might win more, or win as many as possible, says one version here. I love this word win. If you follow this word win throughout Scripture, Scripture has a lot to say about winning. And it's not saying things like, you're going to be tired of winning. You're going to win so much. It's, what's it say? What it's saying here is that we can win people over. We can help them change. The, the same word is used in Matthew 18, verse 15, when it says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. And there's this idea here that, quite frankly, if you want to confront somebody about their sin and the goal is not to win them over to be your brother again, you're doing it wrong. It's an incorrect way of approaching them. The goal of confrontation is to win them, to have that restored relationship. 1 Peter 3.1, talking about wives and their unbelieving husbands and how they are to act in a godly, serving way. 1 Peter 3.1, in the same way, which is... Uh, a horrific idea here because we've just talked about Christ being crucified as our example, being treated unjustly, not reviling in return. The way of the cross is one where we are totally different from the world, not standing up fighting for our rights, but, but humbly serving others and being wronged in the same way. That's what he means by in the same way. That's being treated unjustly and following Christ's example who was crucified and did not fight back or revile in return. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, obviously, they will need to hear the word, but the, the assumption here is that they know why their wife is doing that. And that the idea is that the way we win people to Christ, according to 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3, is that... We not only share the truth with them, but we live in such a way that the world says, I don't understand it. It's uncanny to me. They are different than anybody else. It's a paradox. They, I treat them poorly. I treat them unfairly. I'm ripping them off. I am cruel. I am relentless. I'm so despicable, it bothers me. And yet, they are so patient. They are so loving. It's almost like the, the worse I treat them, the more they respect me. Either they are the biggest fools on the planet or they have something that I know nothing of. 
That's the way of the cross. That's what evangelistic service does. It serves people in such a way that they say, I, I just don't get it. I, have, I don't deserve to be treated as well as they're treating me. I am humbled by this. I'm embarrassed by this. It's not the kind of awkward, um, you know, holier than thou. It is genuine. And Paul gives three examples of sacrificial service. The first one is to Jews. Verse 20. To the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win the Jews, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. So the first question I had when I read this, because he's talking about Jews and those under the law, is why does he differentiate between them? Because it seems like all Jews would be under the law, and anyone under the law would be a Jew. There would be an exception, I suppose, and that is proselytes. Gentiles who converted to Judaism wouldn't, in the truest sense, be Jews, but they would be under the law. So it's possible he's referring to both Jews and proselytes here, but I think he's also just trying to make a point here that he's speaking about people who follow customs and rituals and traditions as they did. Those who were Jews, they saw themselves as under the law. And Paul was saying that when I am with them, it's true. I abstain from things that would offend them. And he says, you know, uh, know, he's not... He's not going to say, I'm free from all that. He's not even going to bring that up. He's going to show them that, yes, Yahweh did institute certain dietary restrictions. And although we are free from those today, as the the, the verse we often quote about meat is what the Lord showed to Peter in his vision in the book of Acts, go ahead, kill, and eat, right? That's the hunter's mantra. It's the hunter's favorite Bible verse. Go kill and eat. But Paul doesn't say, you know, hey, this, this bread without leaven is, is okay, but you should try some baby back ribs, you know? He knew that would offend them. So though he was not bound to the Old Testament law, he knew that the Old Testament law didn't save you, that it pointed you to show that you cannot follow it. It pointed you to your need for a savior. And so he says that he'd been set free from that And yet, he says, those who are under the law, and there's a key word here, he says, as under the law. The word as there, or like under the law, is important for his argument. He does not say, I became a Jew so that I might win the Jews to those who are under the law. I was under the law. He's not under the law. He's free from the law. But I lived as though I was. And that's key to his argument because he doesn't want people coming to him and saying, oh, yeah, Paul, you you say you're free in Christ, but you're still living like a Jew. You're totally inconsistent. He says, no, that word as or like is very significant in this passage. I lived as though I was. Why? As a sacrifice. So he's defending any argument against him that people are using to try and discredit either his apostleship or his rights. Goes on with a second example of being sacrificial, not only to the Jews, but also to Gentiles. Verse 21, he says, to those who are without the law as without law, 
though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Paul was a Jew. He was of Jewish heritage. And as you know, uh, you know, there was not only just a division between Jews and Gentiles, there was a hatred. And it wasn't just racism, which we know that racial, racism is horrific and evil and wicked. But it was worse than that. Because it also, when you called someone a Gentile and you were a Jew, you were not just saying you didn't like their race, you were saying they're godless. And the word became synonymous with unbeliever, godless, somebody who is not following Yahweh. And so Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles. And as he preached, he preached not without the law, because again, he needs to be very careful here. The law is still important. It points us to Christ. So he says, as without the law. See that word there, that little word, as or like? It's very important. Verse 21, to those who are without the law, I became like someone without the law, as someone without the law, though not being without the law of God. He puts that qualifier in there. I I was not without it. And there's a play on words here in the original, actually. The, The word here for law is namas. And if you put an alpha on the front of it, an A, an alpha privative, an alpha a negation. If we say he's a theist, he believes in God. If we say he's atheist, he doesn't believe in God, right? If we say he's namas, it's the law. If we say he's a namas, he is without the law. But there's another word, enamas, not a namas, enamas. And enamas is in the law or subject to the law. And he uses that here. He says, it's not that I am anamas, but I'm enamas. I'm not outside of God's law, but I'm inside of God's law. Which law is that? Well, that is Christ's law. And he makes that distinction. Though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, Teacher, which is the great commandment, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So that's what Paul practiced. He followed the Lord. He followed God with all his soul, all his heart, all his mind, and he loved others more than he loved himself. That was his endeavor. That's why he said in Romans 13.10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And when Paul fulfilled the law of love, he did it by sharing good news with them. As long as he didn't violate God's moral law, he could live as someone without the law. So they came down and they served all kinds of squirming things with antennas and little creatures and feet and pig's hooves and whatever. He didn't say anything. He ate because he had the freedom to do that and he knew it wasn't wrong morally. And so he did that. And he could be pointing back to chapter 8 and all their confusion about dietary restrictions and giving up meat 
and Paul's inconsistent on this, and he does this, and then he does that. And Paul's saying, I make sacrifices. It wasn't really that much of a sacrifice for him to live like a Jew because he lived like a Jew his whole life. But it would have been a sacrifice for him to live like a Gentile, like a Gentile, not immorally in any way, but in things that were not against God's law. He did not want to offend them or cause them to question why he was anything about them or him or the Lord, and he didn't want to try and convey legalism to them, which was a problem. So Paul, um, uh, with the Gentiles, acts differently. Now, this could have been a big issue. We know this because it was a big issue for who? For Peter. In Galatians chapter 2, I'm not going to go there right now. I'll just, I'll just summarize it. You can write a note, though. In, J, in Galatians chapter 2, we have a time where Paul actually rebuked Peter for doing something very similar to what Paul's doing now. Because Peter had been in Jerusalem with the Jews. He came to Antioch to minister. While he's in Antioch, he's eating with the Gentiles. And then and he's eating like, go ahead, kill and eat. He's eating like a Gentile and sitting with them. Then a group of people came from Jerusalem. Christians from Jerusalem. They said they were under the, the, the um, following of James. And so uh, they came up and they would not eat with the Gentiles. Uh, they just ate as Jews sitting separately. And so uh, Peter kind of drifted and went back and now he's separating himself from the Gentiles. And the church was divided. As though the problem was is that Peter was giving the impression that it was more spiritual, more holy to be Jewish, and that was a problem. And so Paul spoke out against that. He called it hypocrisy in Galatians 2, verse 13. But Paul, who may have been accused of hypocrisy here, says, it's not hypocrisy. I'm just living like this so I cannot be a hindrance to them. Again, it's the gospel. What is his goal? Verse 21, I love, I love the word win in this passage just keeps on coming up. Take a look at verse 19. Verse 19 towards the end, so that I may win more. Verse 20, as a Jew, so that I might win Jews, end of verse 20, so that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21, so that I might win those who are without the law. Verse 22, so that I might win the weak, which brings us to our third example. We've seen the Jews, we've seen Gentiles, and now he says the weak. Who are the weak? Who are the weak? New believers. Why would he want to win new believers to Christ? Well, we don't know who the weak are exactly. There are, there are possibilities. It could be that he was serving you know, the spiritually weak. It could be that there were new believers that he wanted to strengthen. Um, after all, chapter 8 did talk about the weaker brother. But the problem with that is that the context here seems to be about salvation. It's, it's actually, in verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I might save some. By all means, save some. The second option that would apply to the Corinthians, it could be the intellectually weak. Those who were, who were you know, maybe they were struggling, wrapping their mind around one God, the all one true God, and wrapping their mind around the fact that they couldn't understand things. And so he spoke very clearly and simply, and he wasn't trying to be an orator. He wasn't trying to argue them with persuasive arguments. He was just speaking the truth simply. It could be the apprehensively weak, 
those who didn't want to become Christians because Christians get persecuted. And there's something that Paul left out of verse 22. I don't know if you noticed. What was the little word that was so important in verse 20 and verse 21? As or like. Let's take a look at verse 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things. He doesn't say I became like the weak. I didn't become as the weak. I became weak. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Keep your hand in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 through 5. First Corinthians 2, verse 1, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, verse 3 says. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul was with the Corinthian church in weakness. He was weak because he didn't have the wisdom of the worldly philosophers. He didn't have the excellence of speech. In fact, Paul, prior to Corinth, had been run out of town in Thessalonica. And then he went to Philippi, and in Philippi he was beaten and imprisoned. So who better to come and encourage you to say persecution is worth as bruises? I was weak, and Christ is worth it. I became weak. I didn't fake my weakness. I was weak. And the gospel was stronger the weaker I was. It is worth it. I have become, look at the word all. I have become all things to all men so that I might all means, by all means, save some. He's talking about self-denial. I'm wondering how challenging this is to us because when we think about our rights, we think about what we can do. And when Paul thought about his rights, he thought about what could he give up. Some poet wrote this. It's an anonymous poem. It says this, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. Real service is what I desire. I'll sing you a solo anytime, dear Lord. Just don't ask me to sing in the choir. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I like to see the things you do, but don't ask me to teach Sunday school, oh Lord, for I prefer to sit in the pew. I'll do what you want me to, dear Lord, to do the things he wills. I'll give you all my coins, dear Lord, but please don't ask for any of my bills. It's Dr. Seuss here. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll say what you want me to say. I'm busy just now with myself, dear Lord. I'll help you some other day. What are you afraid of? 
What are we afraid of? What are we holding on to when we hold on to ourself? We're horrified at books that talk about self-esteem, and yet that is our problem, is that we are self-focused, and we're unwilling to sacrifice for, the, for the, the benefit of others, which leads us to the second key feature of Paul's servanthood, and that is not only great sacrifice, but genuine love. The second key feature of Paul's servanthood is a genuine love, and I'll just say it this way. You cannot serve others unless you really love them. You want to see others come to faith in Christ? Step one, take out a piece of paper. Step two, put their names on the paper. Step three, pray for them. Step four, serve them like there is no tomorrow. Step five, tell them the truth. I do all things, verse 23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. When Paul says, I do all things for the gospel's sake, he's saying, that's my focus that I might win the Jews, that I might win those under the law, that I might win those who are without the law, that I might win the weak for the sake of the gospel. Paul knew what Proverbs 11.30 was all about. Proverbs 11.30 says, "The the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. We have so much. And and, and, and when we recognize that, it should motivate us to share that with others, which is to win them. What motivates Paul? He says at the end of verse 23, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it with you. That word partaker means fellowship or partner. Paul's motive is that he wants others to know Christ, that he might fellowship with them, that they might know what he knows and that they might be partners together. It was so good, he didn't want to keep it for himself. That's servant evangelism. Not because we're looking at self-preservation, but because he was looking at partnership with others who are going to die without it. And he loved them, and he had a heart for them, and he was unselfish. And in somehow in his defense of these attacks, all of this comes out. And it comes out with what we'll be looking into in a couple of weeks, a few weeks when, when I come back. Paul Twist is going to be with you next, the next couple of weeks. But when we come back, we're going to be looking at verses 20... Uh, down to verse 27, so verse 24 to verse 27. And I'll just go ahead and read the first verse. It says, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Verses 24 through 27 are all about self-discipline. Self-discipline. The passage we've looked at this morning, verses 19 through 23, are all about self-sacrifice with the goal of evangelism. It's this selfless, serving evangelism. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for Paul and his example. We thank you for the privilege of being able to look to your word. We pray that you, Father, who gives endurance and encouragement, that you would give us a spirit of unity among ourselves as we follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and one mouth, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know people who don't know you. Forgive us, Father, for being introspective, for being self-focused. Help us, Father, to love others with a genuine love. Help us to serve others that they may be one to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.